Hello, and welcome to In Reality, the podcast about power, truth, and media. I'm Eric Schorenberg, the former editor-in-chief and CEO of Inc. and Fast Company. Later in the episode, I'll be joined by Joan Donovan, head of research at Harvard's Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy. Today, Joan and I are hosting Eli Pariser, co-founder of Avaz and many other organizations, who's been part of the resistance to political polarization and misinformation since before that was a thing. He coined the term filter bubble to describe how social media isolates its users and sorts them into political tribes by feeding them ever more narrow content. We'll talk more about Eli's bio in a moment, but what I really call your attention to in this episode is the optimism that's not all that common uh, in this field. Resisting disinformation can be kind of a dark undertaking because it exposes you to some of the less savory elements of human nature that get unleashed online. And also most of the counter misinformation work being done now, so content moderation, for example, or, or legislation that proposes algorithmic regulation is about how to make social media less destructive but Pariser's vision is about how to make it actually beneficial. The metaphor that he brings up a lot when he talks about his vision is the internet as a public space, like a park or a library. Now, this is different from treating it like a common carrier, which is the idea behind the lawsuits now making their way to the Supreme Court from Texas and Florida which insists that social media sites need to open up their platforms to content that they now censor. That's, that's different from creating a welcoming space. Now, it's hard to imagine a park or a library that functions like a common carrier because those spaces are heavily moderated. That's what makes them feel safe in real life. Imagine what would happen if you organized a mob to harass a female reporter in a park or a library. Now that happens all the time online, but if that were to happen in real life in these public spaces, the norms that are enforced in those places by the, by the crowd or by authorities would prevent it from happening. So anyway, I, the idea of a series of social media sites that compete with the big incumbents by being more friendly, more sociable, more communal, if you will, more beneficial, less surveilling, is an intriguing one and kind of appealing, I have to say. The question is how we get there from here. And uh, that's why we've brought Eli onto the program. So let's hear more about it from Eli Pariser. Welcome, Eli Pariser, to In Reality. <laughs> the podcast that is an advocate for truth. What in reality is about is about rolling back the toxic tide of misinformation and elevating those people who are fighting back against misinformation and are true advocates of truth, which means that inevitably we'd have had to get to you. You have been on the side of truth since the tender age of 24, when you were executive director of Move On. Uh, and since then, you have done one thing after another that is meant to make the internet a safer and more democratic place, uh, including co-founding Upworthy. And now you're co-director of 
Civic Spaces, which is a project of the Conference on Citizenship and the Center for Media Engagement. You have a host of other uh, roles uh, in deep thought about how to promote democracy online, including an affiliate of the Safra Center for Ethics at Harvard, a visiting resident at Princeton, and on and on. Um, your TED Talk is where your heart, heart really seems to lie right now, which is about using the metaphor of public spaces to make the internet a more welcoming and more democracy promoting space. Could you give us a, the two minute summary of how that works? You know, I've always been someone who, who cares a lot in the pro about the promise of democracy and um, also recognizes that, you know, we've never really built things that fully live up to that promise. But, you know, as I've been learning about it, one of the things that's really struck me is how much public space is, an, is a critical element part of how you hold democratic societies together. And you can go back, you know, through the last hundred years and a lot of the most kind of fierce advocates for democracy see this critical role for public spaces as places where people can like see each other, work through conflict together, raise concerns and demands, inhabit space together with people who are different from them, experience the same thing together and be under the same sun. And, um, you know, as you, as you think about the critical role that places like parks and libraries and other public spaces have played in the emergence of kind of the civic democracy, where it's working that we, that we have, it's really striking to contrast that with our digital spaces. And online, you know, we've all kind of accepted this premise that we're going to live in essentially entirely private spaces. It's like, you know, a world where everything is a mall, right, or a hotel, <laughs> and you, you own nothing. Uh, there's no space that is kind of reserved or built around public interest. And I think it's no, no coincidence and no wonder when we look at the information disorder, when we look at the way that people are, the, the dysfunction online, that that some of that is by design. It's because the structures that we're living in were never meant to serve public ends. And now we're seeing what happens when you take that away. So at, at New Public, which is what we're, what we're calling Civic Signals now, um, the, the organization that I'm running, you know, our, 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 our work is to try to figure out, you know, what do those public digital public spaces look like? And how do we actually like build them so that they're useful to people at a, at a large scale? Just to help us understand the metaphor a, a, a little bit better, how would you describe the, the existing media platforms, the existing spaces? What's, what's the public space metaphor? You, you mentioned malls and uh, is, that, is that what Twitter, Facebook, TikTok? Are? Yeah, look, I mean, this is not, uh, there's plenty of things that private businesses do well. But at the end of the day, Facebook and Twitter are companies that are responsible to their shareholders to make money. And the way that they do that is by selling advertising. And the way they do that is by getting people to tune in as much as possible, right? Yeah. The, that's what those spaces are built around. It's like, 
you know, if you've ever heard about like McDonald's and the seating there and it's deliberately red and it's deliberately uncomfortable so that they can like churn people through, you know, that's, that's design in service of the commercial end. And it's not like a super comfortable place to, to hang out. So, um, you know, our, our digital spaces that we're living in are designed to keep us re reloading and engaged. And, um, you know, I don't have to tell you or John this, like that creates a whole bunch of dynamics in terms of what kinds of engagements are possible that are really good for people spreading disinformation and not very good for other ways of people getting to see each other and come together. I just, I want to, I want to push back on the notion that the, the, the metaphor of space makes sense for the internet, right? So, you know, when I think about space, I think about a place in time where an event happens, right? So that's a little bit different, but you could say, you know, meet me at the park at four, right? And that, you know, is a, is a place in a location where, you know, you are setting the time and you're saying, okay, this is what's going to happen there. And then, of course, you have all these logistical things that social media does really well. I mean, if we think about just the event function on Facebook, right, where people are like, let's do the entire Occupy movement essentially through Facebook events, right? And you see all these uh, uses of protest to say, okay, we're going to meet up in the wires and then we're going to transpose this into the weeds. Like we're actually going to get out into what early internet pioneers called meat space, right? And there was this uh, idea of cyberspace that was outside the jurisdiction of law. It was beyond uh, any kind of physical consequence. And so therefore the notion of cyberspace wasn't a space at all uh, because there was no embodiment. Of course, things have changed since, since the 90s. Uh, uh, idea of cyberspace and, of course, rendering what we do in physical life uh, as somehow lesser or more rule-based. And so I don't know if it's a space at all uh, online or if we should be thinking with, with other tools or other ways of of approaching this. Because sometimes, like, when, when I talk to you, Eli, I really uh, enjoy it because one of the things that you've you've really tried to uh, put into the conversation is a notion of civic space and that the civic space is more than just metaphorical it's actually a place where things get done and so i'm wondering about as you think about what the internet can contribute to this notion of civic space or public space we're not talking about just any spaces we're talking about very specific uh, yeah. spaces with, with very clear functions, right? And so can you, can you help me get into what it means, uh, to talk about civic space online and how it's a little bit different from the, the notion of space in general? So all, all metaphors are imperfect and the internet can be analogized to just about anything, but here's what I like about space as a, as a metaphor. One is that I, I, I would juxtapose it with kind of information and content metaphors. And, and the reason I don't love information and content metaphors as a way of, you know, where there, there's kind of like a, 
here's this little blip of information is traveling from node to node and the nodes are people's brains and the internet is like this network of brains and information moving across between brains. What I don't love about that way of imagining the internet is that it, A, it like, I think subtly reinforces this rationalistic idea that like people are, you know, information processors that are like taking in information and maybe it's true or maybe it's false. And if you get a false packet, then you become misled. And it, I, I don't know, to me, it just goes in this direction that I think all of your work and all of the work that so many people have been doing to kind of like de-rationalize and put in a social context how misinformation works. I feel like that, that metaphor like creates some problems for that. So the thing I like about space Definitely. is like when we, when we think about people in space, I don't know, when I imagine people in space, I start thinking about people in this kind of like um, social, non-verbal, non-informational kind of behavioral sense. Like I think about like observing a bunch of people on a bench and someone's back is turned to someone else and someone's kind of annoying someone else and they're looking over their shoulder. There's all these like human interaction things that are happening that are richer and to me more like where we need to be paying attention if we want to think about interaction and behavior than like just the content of the piece of paper that one person hands for, to another or whatever. All of that's like relevant and important information to how people behave. And so then the other thing I like about space is that I guess I'm, in this metaphor, it's sort of like, what is the container and design around the conversation or the interaction, right? So like, it's, it's a way of thinking about what options are available to people, what affordances are available to people, what is the, what is the shape of the walls around a, a kind of particular set of human interaction. And I agree with you, like, Twitter is harder to think about that way. To me, that's part of why Twitter is problematic. But like we could, but I also think like if you think about a Facebook group or a subreddit or a lot of other kind of digital contexts, trying to imagine them in a spatial context does help explain and understand some of the kind of dynamics that emerge. And so that's what I like that, that you know, it's like every metaphor, it's as useful as it's useful and it has some, some challenges. But I think like when we think about civic spaces, I guess, you know, part of what I like about them going there is, is you know, it's like ideally, and this is not the way that it happens in practice all the time, a park is designed around some kind of public needs and design and service of public needs and accountable to the public is just so far from almost anything that we experience on a day-to-day -day basis online, right? Like, and, and yeah. to me, like- I mean, I often think about- um, yeah. Facebook is like McDonald's at 2 a.m., right? There's still a manager on duty. You know, you're not going to be able to stand up on the tables and just shout whatever it is you want to shout, you know, and uh, you can't bully people, right? Like there's very low tolerance actually for, for nonsense uh, or a hotel lobby, right? There's rules. Uh, you got to get caught, which is <laughs> sometimes hard. Uh, but I hear you on the, the civic space part of it is that if you're designing for public purpose or the public interest, then actually the things that go on in that public space are going to be very different or in that space are going to be very different from spaces that are modeled on in the in the kindest way information exchange and in the crudest way, probably financial exchange. Um, right. And, 
And so, but one thing that, that is occurring to me as you're talking about the need for online civic spaces, and this is something that Ethan Zuckerman's work is pointing to is, is we're also missing the, the tech stack that would help us get there, right? Because there is no digital public infrastructure that would ensure that these spaces do serve a public interest principle. You know, without getting too much into any kind of nitty gritty, you know, I know that you're not here just being like, and that's why I have a new app, right? You're really trying to to push our notion of, you know, nobody's on a single platform, right? That we're in a multi-platform society. So what kinds of things are starting blocks, right? I'm not telling you, you got to, you know, design the whole thing before, before we're, we're going to be bought in, but uh, where do we start building these public spaces that have these public purpose functions? Is it, we take an event that's very important, like voting and start there, uh, or do we take in a, you know, do we do this around crisis, uh, you know, is as a kind of like, we only activate public spaces on the internet in moments where we need broad public buy-in and support. So, so my mind actually, like I've been a, an activist and an anti-war activist and, you know, filled my share of digital public spaces with political argument and, and protest or what, what spaces we have anyway. Um, but I actually like with when I'm thinking about this, like like one thing that was really striking to me is I was looking at just like how do we as a society allocate public space in in physical life, and not not assuming that that has to be like a perfect analog, but it's like you you look at it and you go, there's all the the like yelling at strangers about politics is like reserved for a tiny tiny fraction of the space that we allocate for public life. Right, that's like the the soapbox corner or the town square or like the town meeting, but that's like a teeny, you know, or the protest, right? But that's happening like a teeny amount of the time, and a lot of the time, it's you know soccer fields and uh, parks and other you know rec centers and smaller communities, places where people are basically like who may not be able to afford it otherwise are able to come together and cohabitate and do something useful or fun, right? <laughs> and um, and so to me, uh, you know, we wanna be looking not just for like the, the tip of, to me, you sort of like build civic capital or social, co you know, whatever, uh, social connection in those spaces so that you can then spend it when you get to the contentious meeting or the contentious protest or whatever. But but that's not the ideal, actually, is that we're all just arguing with each other all the time more. It's actually that we, like, have other ways of being together that, like, give us the cross-connection and and empathy that then when we get into those arguments, maybe we can, like, have better arguments. And so uh, the place that I'm really interested in, Ethan Zuckerman, who has been a, someone that we've learned a lot from and kind of an expert in the, in the space, you know, is, I think, thinking about the same direction, which is, you know, at the same time that we're talking about all of this, we have this collapse of local journalism. And what news, local newspapers at their best have been is kind of like this local local information space, local information forum. And that does a bunch of 
things. And some of that is about like hiring the journalist that's gonna do the investigative report on the mayor. But a lot of it actually isn't. You know, a lot of it is the letters to the editor page. A lot of it is the local like family coverage. Um, and all of that has suddenly like cratered for a ton of communities across the country. So to me, I think it's really interesting to think about how could you replicate those functions without replicating the form of a newspaper? Because who's to say that the form of a newspaper or even an investigative journalism article is the right one for this information environment that we're going into? And just to say one, one other thing on this, like, I don't think that these spaces that we're talking about have to be all of the space. As you said, like, I think every generation that emerges is more facile at switching between different kinds of digital environments and spaces and understanding, like, this is the kind of thing that's cool or, or good for TikTok. This is what I'm doing on Snap. This is what I'm doing on like a side chat or whatever. You know, I think we can design for people who know what kind of conversations belong where. And that some of those are probably better suited to public spirited design. And some of them are perfectly fine in the Snap or Instagram or whatever. Eli, it strikes me when you're, you're talking about the ideal public spaces in the three-dimensional world, there are often things where people are brought together by a common interest, you know, the, the kids' soccer game, or by the pursuit of um, a common quest like a library for, for knowledge. But those kind of things do exist online. There, there are, you know, Facebook groups. There are Reddits, and in a sense, those are public spaces, communities. They have some of the things that, in your TED talk, you outlined as being essential to a public space. That they're built for a community. They have, they have mayors. <laughs> they have redditors. Uh, they have, uh, to some extent moderators, where do they come up short in your estimation? Let's like double click on libraries, which I know is a, I've learned a lot from Joan also. And I, they're and the, they're the future so. of information, right? They've been yeah. the past, you know, and I think our, our social media ecosystem would be greatly enriched by putting 10,000 librarians in charge of what shows up, you know, in algorithmic search returns. I, don't, I mean, don't, I love that. I love that metaphor. What does it mean? What, what, is, what does 10,000 librarians mean? Yeah, but 10,000 librarians is, is the force for organizing the world's information. Leaving it up to data scientists is, is about counting words. Uh, whereas with you have librarians who, uh, who organize genre. Right. It's it's fundamentally different. But Eli, I got on my soapbox <laughs> floor. So no, I, I was just going to point to that soapbox. And at some mm -hmm. point, you know, you you must have tweeted, you know, the, the like deploy 10,000 librarians to Silicon Valley stat. And I'm like 100 <laughs> percent yeah. with you. But it, but but like, um, you know, because I guess I would also say, like, again, when we're thinking about what what, what is the job of a librarian? Like the job of a librarian, yeah, there's an information management piece of it, but it's also actually this like complex piece of holding the social space. And people don't just go to libraries to like access knowledge generically, right? Like when you actually go into the library, you have like some kids who need a space after school to play chess. You have a person experiencing homelessness who's trying to get access to the internet. You have someone who's trying to access their federal benefits. And you have people trying to get books and other kinds of information. 
And what a librarian essentially is, is we've decided like, you know what, it makes sense to invest in someone who not only like informationally, but socially can help manage this really complex space that, that people need to share. And it actually has in many communities become like the place where a lot of service provision happens because we've like taken away all of the other places, right? So, so I think like what that points us to is like, um, you know, there's a labor, there's a labor piece of this, right? There's the spaces and then there's like the, 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 like, how do we choose to invest in labor and what kind of labor matters to us? And I guess like, Joan, when we were talking, when you were referencing like the hotel lobby at 2 a.m., I just like spent the first night in a hotel for however long since the pandemic. And it was like, they were having, they were having staffing shortages um, and everything was kind of dilapidated and the person was rushing around. It's like, that's, that is my feeling of how we've chosen to staff our digital spaces, which is like way, way understaffing the people who are actually kind of going to do this care work of helping everyone navigate. And what anyone will tell you is that like, if you don't invest in social workers and librarians and other people who are involved in helping a community kind of like deal access services knit together, then things fall apart. And I feel like that's what we're, that's what we're experiencing. So I'm a hundred, it's probably not 10,000 librarians. It's probably like a hundred thousand librarians or a million librarians, but it's more like, the better. We, yeah. we get the internet that we invest in and we've chosen to invest essentially nothing and let advertisers put the bill and look where that's gotten us. One thing too, that your, your work on space points us to is, is the local right? There's something about the community and local that is uh, difficult to manage online. I, you know, one of the things that has been perplexing in some instances has been incredibly invigorating the way in which all things are global online. There's no such thing as uh, a link that is purely local, right? And so one of the things that that's helped do over the years is uh, link together diaspora communities like we're witnessing with Ukraine right now and how many people all over the world are able to connect in and understand the struggle um, for freedom. Uh, but on the local level, we often hear this uh, refrain from activists and and even policymakers, election officials, which is that getting out local information is is really hard. Uh, but on the flip side, it's a bit of a nightmare if your local story goes national, uh, especially if it's some public interest story and you didn't want to be that famous. And so how do we manage the local and the contingent aspects of, of creating space online so that we don't end up constantly, you know, I think part of the reason, okay, this is the last of the soapbox comments, but I think part of the reason why our local news ecosystem is so broken is because uh, reporters are chasing national storylines because that's what people are clicking on and that's what's getting the engagement. Whereas local stories that are meant for just a couple hundred people are just, they're not worth writing in terms of the, the ROI, the return on investment. So, you know, that's an, an aside, but for you, how do we rescue the local? Yeah, well, I think this is really a critical, I think this is a critical piece. I mean, I guess I start from the premise that like, we will look back in 10 years 
and think like this whole idea of having an algorithm that's somehow gonna magically sort information for 3 billion people, that was like hilariously laughably dumb, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Like, like, of course that doesn't work. How could that possibly work? Like, have you met 10 humans, let alone like 3 billion? Like, there's no way that that works. And so I feel like um, we are seeing this shift of the, the swing of the pendulum toward more federated or other kinds of ways of reestablishing scales that actually make sense for human being. And that's not to say that there may not be some layer that is the, the global layer, but I do think like when I compare a, a Twitter or Facebook and a Reddit, there's something that Reddit has right about the sense of kind of multiple domains and communities that have a sense of their own moderation and governance. Right. Definitely not perfect. Definitely a place for Nazis and other jerks a lot of the time, but but does at least have some sense of kind of like federated sovereignty that Facebook or Twitter, it's like, I'm just going to let it out there and whatever happens, happens. Um, so, but I think I would push back on like, you know, my understanding is the, the local information needs are actually really acute. Part of it is a misunderstanding between journalists about what the local information needs are, right? Like when you survey people, parents are like, I have no clue what's happening in my community and I want to know. And I, and people want to know like, why is that building going up over there? Who is building it and what is it for? There's actually like this huge void of really relevant information that people do want to talk about because like everybody's gossiping about local stuff that's like a lot of how people how we all live our lives right um but we haven't like fit our kind of media structures to those desires and part of that i think is a is a set of ideas about what journalism is that precludes like reporting on kids events because that's not really like the serious important work of speaking truth to power and so i think reestablishing the importance of kind of like no actually like people have needs here they matter and serving them is great and there's a whole bunch of different ways we can do that and that doesn't necessarily mean it looks like someone with a byline writing a 20 you know 2000 word article to me that's like a, a piece of the puzzle too but i but i guess i i feel like when we think at new public about what we're building you know it's not going to be an app ideally it's like a set of recurring kind of motifs or institutions or spaces that people can set up on their own in particular localities that then they can custom to themselves because they think that's like that's where the magic happens actually like libraries are look different in different communities if they're working right because the needs are different eli as a as a guy who spent the last x many years uh, of my career trying to find a path to profitability for a media company um i can tell you that the local news isn't just the journalists don't have a, a grasp of what their communities yeah. want, that the model isn't there and that people don't want to reach into their wallet for local news much as they may say that they they want it they don't they don't see the need enough to pay for it and then there aren't enough of them for the advertising model to to work but uh, you know so that's a that's another yeah. thing that the local news is hard but i want to double click on what you what you're just envisioning uh these platforms that you describe that people can 
stand up kind of on their own to create a space. One that you've mentioned a lot uh, admiringly is uh, the front, front Porch Forum in yep. Vermont. Uh, what is it about that that you like and does it kind of check the boxes you've talked about of sort of um, federalized uh, community moderated, you know, internally? Yeah, so, so Front Porch Forum is a Vermont-specific um, social, social media platform. And everyone, I'll give everyone a moment to snicker about it's Vermont. And yeah, I know. But, um, but, Do they even uh, have the internet up there? I thought the internet pretty much stopped at the yeah, border of New I, Hampshire. Look, Maybe I'm I wrong. I Maine, so, you know. Um, Are you a maniac? You're a maniac. Yeah. I love it. What I love about Front Porch Forum is it it demonstrates what is possible when you relieve yourself of the imperative to constantly grow and constantly engage. And so what they said was like, okay, we want to have a space where every single thing that people say, you know, meets the norms that we're asking people to meet. In order to do that, we need to have people read every post and have time to respond. In order to do that, hmm, we're going to have to like find a way to really limit the number of things that people are saying because we can't have a team on 24 7. so what if people could only post once a day uh it's a locally bounded you know about a thousand people per group once a day moderated discussion um what i think is if, if you talk to folks from vermont a lot of people are on it it does cross class and kind of rural urban barriers you know, people also use Facebook a lot and they also use Twitter a lot. And it's not to the exclusion of those things, but there are kinds of local conversation that everybody knows are going to happen best on Front Porch Forum. Because, for example, you know, if you want to get into a flame war, you've got to be willing to sustain that for like 14 days running in order to have a really back, good back and forth. Mostly that just runs out of air or people like, chill and decide that they have better things to do in their life. And so um, I, I think Front Porch Forum is just an example of we don't have to accept that these in engagement dynamics that we live in are the only way to organize public conversation. Like, I, I really worry that people start to feel like just publicness equals toxicity. And that's like the death of democracy. Right. Like as soon as you like start to feel like ah, I just I'm just going to be in my like little bubble with my friends, you know, we start to lose a grip on any sense of public good. And so, you know, how do we build spaces that actually like do the opposite? By the way, um, I'm glad you mentioned bubbles. You're the you're the guy who gave us the filter bubble a term that is now so everyone recognizes and and grasps the truth of it. One of the other things you stood up was Upworthy, which was, uh, you know, a worthy endeavor to, to bring you know, good news to, to the internet. Um, it grew rapidly. I think at the, at the peak, it, did you have 80 million? Yeah, for about a month. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, well, that's the way, that's the way it works online. Uh, did that experience color the way you look at the online world now? Yeah. I mean, look, Upworthy was basically, we're going to try to game the Facebook algorithm to get 
what we consider to be kind of like hopeful and civically useful information out in front of a wide audience. And uh, it's funny because I, I have friends who are teaching college classes who try to explain Upworthy. And it's like, so that era of like how people would consume media is so dated now for people who are coming up in college that it's like hard to even understand like what we would have been doing, <laughs> you know, because it wouldn't make sense in a TikTok world or an Instagram world or like the, the way that people are consuming media now. But that was essentially the, the, the premise with Upworthy. And I think I'm proud of a lot of the stories that we got in front of, in front of tens of millions of people. But I also really, it, it was a VC-backed startup and it gave me a very tangible sense as a mission-driven person of what that means. And we had like great VCs. We had totally aligned VCs who never at any moment tried to interfere where I was going with the company or where, where my co-founder was. But when you're trying to build for a 10x return at some point to someone, you have to be thinking in this incredibly pressured way about growth and about engagement. There's just no other way to get there. What that means is that when we wanted to do a big bunch of work on climate change or something else that was really important to us, it was just really hard to fit in. And obviously, you know, at Fast Cap Company and other places, like, you know, people find a way to do this, to do this balance well. But I guess for me, it was a reminder of like, oh, there's a reason that we have some institutions that are not structured primarily around delivering, like, not just the profit, by the way, but like an outsized profit to financiers. It sounds like you're saying, well, maybe I'm taking this a little bit too far, but it sounds like you're saying that the profit motive, and maybe you're, and maybe it's not the profit motive, but it's the 10x rapid blitzscaling motive that that distorts public discourse and relationships between people. But but it's possible to to read you know your writings and listen to your talks and come away with the idea that the public spaces that you're talking about online have to be not private. They have to be some kind of public organization. Am I taking that too far? Is that true? Yeah, no, I mean, and, and I think it's like only, this is such an American conversation in that way, right? That when I talk to folks in Europe, they're like, yeah, of course, like there are things that are better. You know, these are a lot of European companies, countries have, for example, invested really heavily in, in public media. Like our investment in public media in America is so uh, so tiny compared to most of other states of our shape and scale. And so like in other countries, people go like, yeah, duh, like you need to invest in your information environment or bad things will happen. Just like you need to invest in your physical infrastructure or bad things will happen. For us, I think like we, we live in a free market uh, neoliberal paradigm where even to suggest that some things might be better done uh, in the public domain feels like some big leap. But I guess for me, as I've been like learning about this stuff, um, you know, it's striking to me how many times in American history and in the history of other countries, at times of stress, at times of fracture, at times of chaos, this is actually the move this is to invent a, a new kind of public in institution. And when you had you know, masses of people beginning to become literate, you started to have libraries and newspapers. And when you had, you know, and then you started to have public high schools and public colleges. And this is just like a, a history that we've actually like 
done many times that right now, for whatever reason, seems like totally outlandish, even though like Elon Musk can say whatever crazy thing he wants to do next about putting, you know, robots on Mars. And everyone's like, yeah, cool. Let's, let's go do that. So part of what I'm trying to do is just kind of reawaken our sense of like, you know, American imagination and potential for publicness. Like that's, that's been part of the story all along. But right now, for whatever reason, it's like this tiny little shriveled, sad uh, part of our psyche. Yeah. Okay. So I want I wanted to ask as we as we think about you know invention and technology, I, you know you you like you awakened the sociologist in me by talking about social <laughs> institutions. I'm sorry about this, but uh, yeah, she's a beast. Um, so, uh, you know, in grad school, I used to call, uh, be nicknamed the CEO of sociology because I was always like <laughs> trying to trying to push, uh, you know, uh, the, the work further. And when you say, yeah, that there's technological innovation that begets new social institutions, Habermas, um, the German philosopher of technology and, and political space, uh, said that while the printing press made everyone a uh, reader, the internet makes everyone a publisher, right? And that shift suggests that, yes, like there is a kind of new social institution forming and i don't know if we can be so intentional about building social institutions one of the things that's uh remarkable inside this entire discourse about how much misinformation is affecting the public and are we more deluded and conspiratorial than we've ever been and part of that is is that we just have all these digital traces to analyze so it feels like more because we can see more but at the same time there is a difference in the quality and quantity of information that people are consuming and there is a difference in the amount of let's just say non-serious uh information that is circulating and then you have the problem of course of creating knowledge where knowledge is not information it's actually uh, much different in terms of the fact that it is incredibly expensive to produce and falls follows a methodological rigor it's 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 a kind of information but it's not the same so what I'm, I'm trying to ask here is that uh as we think about the new social institutions that are popping up one of the things that the misinformation discourse has really brought my attention to is the forcefulness by which the public is demanding that social media become a truth-telling institution right really trying to force these companies to behave in different ways and i'll give you one example has been twitter used to be a threat to governments turkey's banned banned twitter during the revolution yeah. in gezi park we had uh we had you know lots and lots of governments try to demand that that twitter be uh wrangled and then in the past few weeks as as the invasion in Russia has kicked off and uh, we now start to see platforms taking the advice of governments and removing content that is deemed propaganda or deemed misinformation and we're seeing it accelerate in this moment and so where goes the publication imperative of the internet which allows us all to have this this new capacity uh in light of the fact that we don't have a social institution yet in place that 
performs these important gatekeeping and truth telling functions. Sorry about that. Sociologists going back to bed. Uh, yeah. Eli, before you answer, let me just uh, say for the sake of the listeners that we're recording this six days into the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. The, it's hard to think about anything else these days. And I'm glad that the conversation has organically turned in, in that direction with, uh, uh, with Jones default to sociology. <laughs> anyway, so yeah. Eli, uh, your answer. Well, I mean, I think I totally agree that it's hard to like set out to invent a social institution and do it. Uh, I also think a lot of the people who, you know, you just need a lot of experimentation and, but a lot of the people who historically were experimenting kind of knew what they were experimenting with in some sense. And so I feel like there is a value to getting a bunch of people amped up about Let's play with these new forms. Um, and, I, you know, I, I'm seeing that in a whole variety of, of ways. Um, we, haven't, we haven't gone into the dreaded, like, Web3 world yet in this conversation, but I actually think there are some things, with, with all of my skepticism about a whole bunch of that stuff, I think there are some things bubbling up there that are really interesting. But I, to your question, John, you know, I think part of... Part of the like aha that's happening for everyone is like we thought because we could post that we had some 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 control, some governance. Um, but it turns out that what Twitter and Facebook offered us was like the ability to participate in this one very narrow way while totally while having zero ability to affect the governance of that system. Right, like the like every plea to Mark Zuckerberg has fallen on deaf ears as far as like he, he can do what he wants. So I feel like part of where the innovation is going to happen is in ways that people can actually kind of take some ownership back and self-govern more. And that's going to be imperfect in all sorts of ways. But I guess the the bright side of that equation is you know I think it could be really good for kind of reestablishing democratic culture. Um, or, or establishing it for the first time. And so, you know, because when people think about democracy, and I guess this is on my mind partly because of the Ukraine stuff, you know, we tend to think about the rule of law and we tend to think about voting, but actually like all of that rests on this um, lived experience of like, I got together with some other people and we did some stuff and it was, it was pretty good or it was okay. <laughs> And it was better than like some random dude telling everyone what to do. That's like, that's the core value proposition of democracy in a lot of ways. And our digital spaces actually like, don't always offer us that, that opportunity to really like have that experience of power or governance. And so I think part of what we're talking about is like finding ways to build the kinds of spaces that people can then participate in, in governing and setting the rules for with all of the pain and difficulty that that implies, right? Like governance isn't easy for anyone at any time, anywhere, but it also does build this muscle and this faith that people together can do something. And I feel like part of what we're living through now is this kind of erosion and the belief in that process. And that's where autocracy starts to like come from. Could I ask uh, both of you to evaluate how the platform's are performing, how they're being used, um, 
by people on the ground or observers in other countries in the conflict uh, in Ukraine, it seems that in many ways, we, at least the way it's being used in Ukraine and the rallying support around that beleaguered country suggests that the platforms are playing a pro-democracy role um, in, in communicating outward to the world and showing, you know, among other things, the heroism of the Ukrainian resistance. Um, but I'm sure it is way more complicated than that. And John, I know you have particular, in your own office, particular contact with um, um, how this is working because of a family, uh, one of your coworkers has a family member in Ukraine. Would you, would you tackle that question first? Yeah, I think, you know, the idea that the platforms are doing better or worse is something that we should veer away from at this stage, just because we actually can't know. Uh, and one of the things that our team has really been focused on is trying to understand exactly how much uh, filter bubbles are occurring and how much we're seeing uh, platforms themselves acting as vectors of information control. Mm -hmm. And so we have to be really careful because on the one hand, we do want platform companies to uh, serve up information in the public interest to make sure the voices of of citizens are are being uh, amplified uh, and at the same time over the past several years you've seen a progression of platforms starting to veer towards high quality news and information so serving up basically well-resourced newsrooms. And in a war, what we would like to see is the voice of the people shine. Uh, but right now it's it's like watching, you know, an information war play out. You see Facebook and Twitter are removing covert influence operations by Russia on their platforms. And, you know, much has been said about, of course, what we would call the weaponization of these technologies but i firmly believe that everything open will be exploited and so long as facebook and twitter are built in such a way so as to uh, uh promote growth and amplification and engagement uh in reward that we're going to see a battle over the narrative take place uh on these social media platforms and so it's really incumbent upon us to be discerning about the information that we share. Uh, we're seeing a ton of recontextualized media. It's probably the most uh, prevalent misinformation tactic within uh, this moment. So videos of uh, Russian paratroopers, for instance, were uh, simply cuts of a, a military training exercise from a few years prior. We're seeing uh, footage from video games being served up as if it's satellite imagery. Uh, and so we're seeing a lot of recontextualized media across all of the platforms, including TikTok and Instagram, which we don't talk as much about. And so it's going to take us a while to settle in the fog of war. Uh, and it's going to take us a while to get to uh, the truth of the matter of what happened on the ground. But we're watching in real time uh, these these information wars play out. And the role that the platforms are going to play in the future of of 
skirmishes uh, and wars makes us think that they're going to have to go through some process of redesign uh, at this stage because you can't allow these propaganda networks to seed and grow audiences until such time that they they are mature enough that during a uh, a war situation they're able to pump out information to millions and millions of people and and Putin has been very clear that he is going to revise Ukrainian history he's going to erase uh, Ukrainians and their history from the narrative and and he's going to put in its place this vision that Ukraine was always part of Russia and of course Ukraine predates Russia by a couple hundred years and so we have to be um, cognizant of the fact that American ignorance about the history of the Russian and Ukraine conflict is going to play heavily into the ability for disinformation to travel and take hold uh, as the public starts to rise up and do what we do best, which is protest. And you've started to see the networked protest of anti-Russia activists, anti-war activists, uh, really start to take hold on Saturday. There were a couple hundred protests across the world. I'm anticipating that there's going to be more in the next few weeks. And what that means is that Russia is becoming everybody's problem now. And as a result, when people have a common enemy, I mean, there's nothing like when the world has a common enemy and they unleash that uh fervor on twitter right there's that old uh adage that you know there's always one person on twitter every day and you don't want to be that person right now russia is that person and so um but we're seeing a global rise in in anti-war activism which to me is heartening but you know it, it's hard because these platforms are business and as a result their their interests lie in uh, making sure that their business survives another day and yeah. is profitable day to day. Um, I know we need to wrap up, so I'm going to give Eli the last word here. I think we should. Eli, how would you characterize the performance during this during this period of history? I mean, I think as as John says, it's hard to even know. I think part of what we're seeing also is you know platforms that have tried very hard. I'm thinking especially at Facebook here to imagine that there's some kind of position of neutrality that they can occupy realizing that neutral doesn't exist. Uh, you know, all decisions in some ways are valued decisions and you have to like either implicitly or explicitly state what your values are. You know, I also just feel like in this moment, I hope what happens is, you know, that there's a new, a new sense of the fragility and importance of of democracy and that these systems that we've all lived in that we've often taken for granted actually require a lot of investment they require a lot of work they require vision and they require constant kind of building toward the aspirations that we have for them you know or or, or autocracy takes over because in some ways that's an easier and more natural way of organizing you know, large groups of people. And so I'm feeling uh, sobered, but also dedicated and hopeful that 
this moment can spark some of the kind of like serious investment and in what we need to create a digital democracy that we need. And I'm, I'm so grateful for the work that you're doing, John, and for, for the chance to talk about it today. Eli, it's been great to have you. Thank you for joining us. And that is a really helpful note to leave on. But let us hope that this crucible uh, that's going on around the world in, and uh, particularly focused on Eastern Europe does energize uh, a more democratic look online. You've been listening to In Reality, the bi-weekly podcast on power, truth, and media. Our thanks to our friends at Podcast Partners who produce the show, with special thanks to Paul Blanchard, Holly Duncan Quinn, Amelia Spooner, Lauren Faz, and Megan O'Neill. Please subscribe on our website, inreality.fm, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your listen. And if you like what you heard, please leave a review. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by the very nice and very expert team at Podcast Partners. If you like how it sounded and you're a podcaster yourself, learn more at podcastpartners.com.